Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will, several types of primate, all at once. And I'm Leah, not, in fact, a bee. We think. We'll have to compare you to a few other things which may or may not be bees and determine which is the bee-type shape that they occupy and see if you match any other criteria. I mean, the, the easiest way of determining if something is a bee or definitely not a bee is to look at their waist, and I don't have that. Like, they call it a wasp waist for a reason. It's one of the distinctive visual characteristics of the group that contains bees, ants and wasps is their teeny tiny waist in between their thorax and abdomen. Okay, well, that makes me not a bee as well, as well as several types of primates. We all contain our ancestors in a way. So, yes, you're every primate you passed through on the way to becoming a man. That sounds like the most intense kind of, like, kumite fighting ring you have to fight. First of all, the lemurs, then up and up and up. No, that is how the one grading I did for jujitsu went. There are a lot of apes. <laughs> Until you eventually come out as, ironically, top dog. But, um, tish, maybe. We'll hopefully explain more about these jujitsu rankings in just or a not. moment. I think you can just enjoy the surreality caused by it being okay. a Sunday morning where we've slept badly and both have a cold. Like So people will get the setup <laughs> to these punchlines in a few minutes. Yeah. In a while. Hopefully, we think. Um but until then, like you say, we've it's a Sunday morning. We've rested. We're maybe not restful, but we have uh, had a sleep. Uh, we've not had £200,000 yet. No, I'm still waiting for that because the sleeping hasn't really improved in my life at all. But the £200,000 definitely would. So if anyone wants to kick that out away so that I can pretend I've had a good night's sleep. For more on why we would like all of this money, you can listen to us in episode 11 uh, explaining how Jeremy Hunt, MP, should give us all of this cash. If he can't give us £200,000, maybe... The researchers from the University of Tsukuba can help with a brand new press release telling us that if you can't sleep due to stress, they might just have the cure for you. The group at the International Institute for Integrative Sleep Medicine at the University of Tsukuba have tried out this compound called octocosanol, which is abundantly present in various everyday products such as raw sugarcane, rice bran, wheat germ oil and beeswax, have given it to mice and have found it helps you sleep if you're suffering from stress-induced insomnia. Yes, and they note in the press release, which we think has been written by a non-native English speaker, so if you are reading along you might have to connect a few dots to well, get to what we think they're saying. I think possibly it's been written in another language, for example Japanese, translated into English and then not proofread by a fluent English speaker. So uh, especially the first paragraph is a little bit back to front. It's a little bit here and there, but if you keep with it, I think you can figure out... It makes out... more sense later on. Yeah. So they do note that sleep loss, not sleeping very well, is associated with certain other diseases, including obesity, cardiovascular disease, depression, anxiety, mania deficits, which we're willing to trust them is a thing. But that, this research group, led by Maresh K. Kaushik and Yoshihiro Urade from the Integrative Sleep Medicine Unit, have determined that octocosanol given to mice, either, like you say, derived from all of these natural sources or from its crude extract polycosanol, helped them achieve normal sleep, which was previously disturbed by stress, and that whilst this works for mice, they do caution that it may not affect sleep in normal animals. Which makes me wonder if mice aren't normal animals? 
Are they talking no, about the normal levels of stress? No, I think what they mean is the stress levels in that. They haven't mentioned how they stressed these mice out. I'm wondering if they maybe like gave them uh, two people's worth of work because someone had left and not been replaced yet. Or um, if they've... Just left the TV on a news channel and... The stressed mice, when given octocosinol, the cortisol levels in their blood dropped back towards normal levels and they quickly began to experience more normal sleep, whereas previously it had been disturbed. The researchers note that octocosinol, or its polycosinol origin, is available for human use to increase lipid metabolism, to lower cholesterol, and provide strength, so you can go out and get it. Or maybe you should just go straight to the source and chew on some raw sugarcane right before you go to bed. Or beeswax. Just take a scoop out of a hive and chow down. Sit there with that floor polish that can't possibly end badly it will it will end badly do not eat floor polish <laughs> the lesson from eureka today mr sheen is not your friend <laughs> don't his, believe his lies don't don't eat him anyway <laughs> don't put him in your mouth <laughs> this might be how they've been stressing out the mice they've been threatening them with <laughs> mr sheen other brands are available but if this helps you get to sleep then let us know because i mean we need it. However, if it is already past the point and you do have stress and you're not sleeping, then you might have identified the link between your stress and your not sleeping. In fact, the previous study identified the link between stress and not sleeping. That research has been doubled down on by the University of Leeds, who identify a link between poor sleep and poor mental well-being. Who knew? I think we all are aware that anecdotally it's commonly reported that if you've had a bad night's sleep, you're going to feel bad the next day. The University of Leeds have done, have taken a slightly different approach with this study. Instead of having people in the lab sleeping and then trying to do a bunch of artificial tasks, they've sent out a survey so that people can report in their day-to-day -day lives how having a night where they slept for less than five hours affects them the following day. And, as has been recognised for some time, sleep is important for memory consolidation, forming new memories, discarding what can be forgotten, just basically sifting through what is and is not useful for your brain. Some people think that's what makes dreams so weird, is the process of sorting out, well, I recognise this face, I've been doing this activity, so I'll have similar dreams. I've certainly had some very Blade Runner dreams after watching the trailer in the film. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of baking and dreaming mostly about bread, but quite intensely, quite intense dreams about bread. That might be the new medication also, I don't know. And Dr. Weigel and Dr. Ian Kellett from the University of Leeds, looking at this survey data collected from over 1,000 UK adults between the age of 18 and 80, which also this study conducted in collaboration with Silent Night Bed Manufacturer. Like, all those adverts, I think they're the chicken and the hippo? Is that Silent Night? I think it's a duck, but yeah. Well, those guys have been stepping in to help out the research, because, I mean, if anyone knows what makes a good night's sleep, you'd think it's probably going to be them. And I'm assuming it is their advert that's talking about being sleep poor and trying to give the cat your coffee in the morning. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's where this research has led to. Is that particular marketing campaign. Mm hmm It's all falling together now. But also, in connection with the discovery that participants who reported less than five hours sleep also reported increased difficulty in actually remembering to do stuff the next day, it has also led the, uh, the authors to suggest that sleep should be seen as a public health priority in the same way as maintaining a healthy weight, eating a healthy diet, and engaging in physical activity. So all of those... Um, 
adverts with the the little green and pink morph people talking about swapping your snacks to lower your sugar intake should also be telling you to go to bed sleep eight hours if at all possible if not have some octocosinol if not at least be lying in bed with your eyes shut for a bit that's better than nothing yeah and one last sleep story for you from this time michigan state university now you might have heard in previous podcasts us talk about psychology and like early lessons in psychology like the placebo effect we've talked about that quite readily um and eyewitnesses we've discussed them and their utility before but it turns out that sleep may help eyewitnesses from choosing innocent suspects and in uh rehearsals for this reading through the stories and leah as a Resident psychology expert, having done the A-level in it, which is more AS than level. AS level. A- half an A-level I, I did in psychology. Which is half an AS-level more than me. Yes, I'm sure you've got some things to say about eyewitnesses again. I'm fairly sure we've mentioned before um, the experiments that have been done where the language you use in posing a question can affect someone's recall of that. So the... I can't remember names of the author of that study, but essentially a group of participants were shown a video clip of a pair of cars colliding when they were asked later how fast the cars were going when they hit one another. Some participants had words like hit or collide, others had things like crashed into or slammed into one another, and the more active and aggressive words had the participants reporting a greater speed in the clip where it was the same clip for everybody and the faster the participants reported seeing the cars move the more likely they were to say that there was broken glass shown when there wasn't so brains are squishy and malleable memory especially is very changeable and unreliable and a lot of cases are decided off the strength of eyewitness evidence because if we want to believe that we ourselves are trustworthy, are reliable, that we can believe in what's in the information in our own heads, we want to believe that of other people as well. But eyewitness testimony is pretty unreliable and this press release does indeed mention that some 70% of wrongful convictions in the US are related to false or mistaken eyewitness accounts. This makes you wonder how they're even admissible in court at this point. I am sure they are very useful in some circumstances, like can you point at the person who did the crime? Sure, that's them there. I mean, sometimes it's all you've got to go on. Sometimes, but if there's if they are behind 70% of wrongful convictions, like imagine a machine that Imagine a lie detector machine that was responsible for 70% of false convictions. You would never trust that. But like you say, it's this human element. And it's always been admissible because especially before we had any sort of forensics, it was all we had to go on. But in this study in particular, like we say, from University of Michigan, Michigan State University, uh, published in the journal PLOS One, lead author Michelle Stepan led a team including Kimberly Fenn, an associate professor of psychology from MSU's Sleep and Learning Lab, 
to conduct an experiment in about 200 participants shown a video of a crime. In this case, a man planting a bomb on a rooftop, much like the video of your car crashes in a previous study. And then 12 hours later, viewed lineups of six similar-looking people. And the groups were divided into having watched the video of the bomb being planted in the morning and then shown the lineup that evening, 12 hours later, or shown the video in the evening, given a chance to sleep, and then 12 hours later they do the lineup experiment. And of the lineups, half of each group saw one that did include the man who they saw in the video, and half were given a lineup that didn't include him. And the difference in how many people picked someone out of a lineup that didn't contain the perpetrator at all, depending on whether they slept or not, is pretty impressive. About 66% of participants who had not slept identified someone who was innocent when the perpetrator was not present, compared to 42% of the time for people who had slept between the video and then the lineup. As so many wrongful convictions in the US are based on this sort of evidence, this is really important. Putting this into practice is likely to put a whole lot less innocent people through the, I mean, the absolute trauma of being wrongfully convicted of a crime. That sentiment is shared by Kimberly Fenn, who says later in the press release that sleep may not help you get the right guy, but it may help you keep an innocent individual out of jail, which is like a very important thing as well. Having slept didn't actually help any of the participants pick the guilty man out of the lineup when he was present. More often, both groups, it was around 50% of the time they managed to select the perpetrator. Still not a great success rate. But people who had slept were less likely to point the finger at an innocent person. So that's going to save everyone a lot of time and money. Also, a quick note about this press release, the picture at the top. Is there a crime going on in the back of it? Because we've got Kimberly Fenn up front smiling, and then what looks like a scene from Bates Motel happening behind her. I don't know if that's like a subliminal thing they've got going on. For I'm assuming or... because Kimberly Fenn is director of MSU's Sleep and Learning Lab. That's a stock photo of her, which includes, I mean, all right, a shadowy figure leaning over somebody in a bed, but some work going on in the Sleep and Learning Lab behind her. So how can we... Best summarise these three studies. Brains are weird. Sleep is important. Important and also weird. Which leads on neatly to our next study, the first in a trio of primate-based research, which may explain a little bit about how I'm several primates all at once, but also, you know, all that evolutionary history and stuff. Lemurs are weird. Why? Well, apparently it's because Madagascar's fruit is at least as weird. Now, there have been a few hypotheses as to why lemurs are, you know, outliers compared to other similar animals. So they are a ways back on the the road through primatedom and having been isolated on the island of Madagascar for a pretty long time, they are especially unusual. But in terms of mammals, they fight by throwing stink bombs at each other, basically. And where some lemur species hibernate when food is scarce, others hoard it and chow down all day and all night to get the food that they need in their systems. 
And the thing that this study in particular is focusing on is their diet. Most primates, as included, will default to a diet that's very rich in fruit. It's a very good source of calories. It's a pretty good source of protein in a lot of contexts. From monkeys all the way up to great apes. Fruit. We like fruit. It's nature's graze box. Sure, why not? <laughs> Lemurs, on the other hand, tend to have a very leaf-heavy diet. They're, they're more veg guys than fruit guys. They like a salad. Kind of like a reverse panda, where panda bears are well-equipped to eat lots and lots of different foods, being, you know, bears. They almost exclusively eat bamboo leaves. It's a weird choice to make. Like, pandas have made so many bad decisions. I sort of agree... No, I do agree with Chris Packham on that one. We're spending a lot of time on energy on a species that just is not that keen on surviving itself. Like, we're not helping, but also they probably weren't long for this world. Anyway, onto lemurs, those other black and white jungle inhabitants. Well, the ring-tailed ones are black and white. Most of the rest of them are varying shades of brown. But yeah, those guys. Well, you agree with Chris Packham. I do kind of agree with Abigail Darby-Lewis senior conservation ecologist at the Field Museum in Chicago and one of the study's authors who says lemurs are equal parts ridiculously cool and totally bizarre in that they represent the extremes and the extremely strange in primate world and this study is about investigating why we see certain patterns in the world. So various of the hypotheses of why lemur diets are particularly leafy include food scarcity, frequent cyclones on Madagascar making it harder for them to find fruit, but what this study has looked at is the actual nutritional makeup of the fruits on Madagascar, in mainland Africa, in Asia, and in the Americas. And this consists of 62 forest sites across those continents. And the fruits that were gathered there in these sites were assessed for their nutritional value in terms of nitrogen, seeing as nitrogen is a key ingredient in making protein, and protein is a key ingredient in making Bodies. lemurs and us and pretty much every living thing. If you start reading into structural biology at all, it will very quickly become abundantly clear that basically everything we are and create and produce as a body and do as a body is based on proteins. It's so cool you might want to get some protein tattooed on your arm, I'm just saying. He literally does, guys. He's not kidding. There's a flu protein tattooed on his forearm. But what the researchers did in their protein escapades was... Really quite adventurous in that they, well, looking at the data in Ecuador, Darby Lewis herself was collecting scraps of fruit dropped by howler monkeys and then climbing the trees to pick the same fruits and branches that they had been eating from, and that this process was repeated around the world at all of these different sites, gathering what was left behind from the feeding primates up above, then going up and collecting the raw samples and the leaves as well to assess the nutritional content, protein and protein-to-fiber ratio, and wouldn't you know, they found a correlation between the amount of nitrogen in the fruits of a given region. And the extent to which the primates native to that region relied on fruit in their diets. If there's more nitrogen about in the fruit, you eat the more fruit to get more nitrogen. As you may have guessed already, fruit on the island of Madagascar where the lemons live is unusually nitrogen poor. So what do you do if there's no nitrogen in the fruit that you're trying to eat? Well, you do what the lemurs do and you go for the leaves instead. So eating more leaves, hibernating to conserve energy and just eating constantly for your entire life are all strategies that lemurs have adopted apparently in response to this 
lack of protein in the fruit that's available to them. Which, when you put it like that, all just kind of makes sense. There definitely are a few species of lemur that are insectivorous as well. That's a very good way of making sure you're getting enough protein is eating bugs. So well done for lemurs, for seeing through the panda's mistake. It feels like it should be a fable. The bear that failed and the, the lemur that succeeded. Yeah, a lesson for success from the animal world. Eat what you are biologically required to and suited to and, like, bamboo for no one. Why? Why would... You, uh, anyway, less about pandas, more about chimpanzees in our next story from the University of Oxford. Conducted in partnership also with Kyoto University and Indianapolis Zoo has demonstrated that chimps spontaneously begin taking turns to complete a task when there is no prompt to do so. Which really goes some way to kind of shoring up the evidence that chimps are very complex as a species. That they're pretty intelligent people. More intelligent than some people I've met, in terms of, like, taking turns. In fact, taking turns is something which we, as humans, apparently prize quite highly in terms of our conversation as well. We don't like people who interrupt and talk over us. We feel like taking turns is a very important social behaviour to have. Interrupting each other and talking over one another certainly doesn't actually facilitate any communication. It's very difficult to listen to someone when you're talking at the same time. It's very difficult to hear what someone's trying to communicate to you if you've interrupted them. And Dr Dora Biro co-author of the study from Oxford's Department of Zoology, says that many animals, from insects through to primates and birds, take turns in certain types of communication, like humans in conversational exchanges, but taking repeated, coordinated turns to achieve a common goal is much less well studied outside of the communication domain, despite the possibility that all such behaviours draw on the same underlying cognitive skills for turn-taking. So, how do you assess this? Well, you give the chimpanzees at Indianapolis Zoo a puzzle, and kind of just leave them to it. Yeah, the chimpanzees were already experts at a task where they had to touch a series of numbers on a touchscreen in the right order. The numbers 1 to 8 are showed on a screen, and they know which one comes at which point in the sequence. This time round, a pair of chimps, a uh, mother and child pair in this case, were given a pair of screens with those numbers 1 to 8 split evenly across them. One side says 1, 5, 7, 8, the other 2, 3, 4, 6. So they've already established that, you know, this is the order it needs to be, but I've only got a half of it. So, hmm, I guess we take turns now in order to get our sweet apple reward, speaking from the chimp's point of view. From the outset, six chimpanzees, the three mother and child pairs, achieved high levels of accuracy, with the young chimpanzees making fewer errors and being quicker to respond than their mothers, but... During the control tests, with each chimpanzee working individually, the mothers were faster, suggesting the young chimpanzees are better at paying attention to their mothers than vice versa. Well, the kids are still very much in the learning mindset of watch the parent, learn, take turns, incorporate this new information. But if it's just a computer whizzing away with you, then there's not so much you can take back in the kind of didactic fashion which you'd expect from them. It is noted in the press release that the asymmetry in the amount of attention being paid by the young individuals to the older individuals than by the older individuals to the younger is important in looking at the direction of information flow. So a, a new idea in the group is likely to spread faster once one of the older members of the group has got hold of it. From smart chimpanzees, we can move on to a final in our primate trilogy, this one coming to us from the University of Rochester. Monkey sees monkey... 
nose? Question mark. And they do pull in some real basic knowing knowledge with the opening quote of, I know that I know nothing, says Socrates. The study is looking at a thing called metacognition, which is essentially having an idea of what you know and what you don't know and how confident you are in that knowledge. So if I were to turn to you and say, well, do you know much about the uh, binomial system of classification? I know some. Now, obviously, he hasn't filed through every single bit he knows about Carl Linnaeus's, uh, or the the innovation usually attributed to Carl Linnaeus. I think there is some debate about who really got there. But he's got an idea that there is some information about that. But if it came up in a pub quiz, you'd... Yeah. You'd have a chance. You'd have a shot at getting... Whereas if the question were about cricket, I would say, I don't know much about this. I'm willing to step down and let someone on my team who knows about sports step up. If only I knew someone who knew about sports. A real handicap on our quiz experience is that we know no one who knows anything about sports. We are very niche. There's so many people who care deeply about sports, but we don't know any of them. So, in this research, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B... Researchers from University of Rochester report that monkeys, much like humans, base their metacognitive confidence on the level of fluency. How easy it is to see, hear, or perceive a thing. For example, humans are more confident that something is correct, trustworthy, or memorable, even if this may not be the case if it is written in a larger font. And you might be thinking, well, you were just talking about eyewitnesses earlier and believing that something comes from a human being, you're more likely to perceive that as true or accurate as well. It turns out that just headlines... A big, bold font on the front of a newspaper, you look at that, you think, sure, I guess. This sort of way of taking in information seems kind of counterintuitive, but in many ways it is actually effective. So the press release uses the example of playing Jeopardy, and it probably extends to any other TV quiz show. A human being can press a buzzer faster than they can actually know the answer, but basing... But if you are listening to a question which contains shorter, more common and easier to pronounce words, you can judge based on that how likely you are to actually know the answer. So, for example, if there's a quiz question which opens with which pop star dot 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 someone who's well attuned to pop music and music history might buzz in immediately and wait till they've got the rest of the question to answer. Whereas if it's which Baroque composer, most of us are going to immediately switch off. Unless, again, that's where you've been paying attention and you have a high level of expertise and fluency. Like, aha, I don't need to hear the rest of this question. I have a good chance of knowing the answer. That's my metacognitive process. In order to demonstrate this in Monkeys, the team set up a computer program. It started off with a start screen, which the monkey had to touch. It then showed a sample image. The one shown as an example is a black and white line drawing of an ant. They are then shown a match and distractors page. Now, who knows if the monkeys actually know what these things are supposed to represent, but it's not important because they just have to decide if they recognise one of these images. So they select the image that they believe they have seen before. And then, instead of just receiving a a reward based on whether they're right or wrong, they're asked to place a bet on whether they believe they are right or wrong. And this is where I think it's really interesting that we can expect amongst chimpanzees, which we already identified... Monkeys. I beg your pardon. Completely different animals. 
we've already identified that monkeys and other primates are very smart. They have high levels of communication and adaptability, like a call and response mechanism where you see a drawing, you push the button again, you get the treat. Like, yeah, we can train that in, but building in a betting system, like just identifying that mechanism and then like, that's quite a stunning development as it is. Like, how do you train that into a group of experimental participants? Now, when the monkey selects their bet, either a high bet of one token or a low bet of three tokens, if their answer is right, that number is deposited into a into a token bank, which is also shown on the screen. When that's full, they receive a reward. So being right and being sure of being right and betting high each time is going to get you treats faster. But if you bet low and you're not right, you will still get one token added to your bank. So the quickest way to get your treat is to bet high with the surety that, yes, I have identified that drawing, I have seen it amongst the distractors, and I am sure. So the researchers manipulated the fluency of the image, so this is the prominence and clearness of it. We use the example of a person is more likely to believe something stated in a headline than, for example, something stated in the text below it, as well as being more likely to notice the headline in the first place. But instead of making the image, for example, bigger, they manipulated the contrast of the image. So sometimes the line drawing would be shown with completely black lines on a completely white background. Sometimes it would be in grey tones of various darkness. Monkeys were more likely to bet high when they were shown the high-fluency, high-contrast image. And yeah, that's the final quote from the paper is, if they saw the sample picture well, it was easy for them to encode, they'll be more confident in their answer, and will bet high. So yet another trait which we have amongst humans, which also goes back to some of our recent ancestors as well. And the important thing in studying this in monkeys is that it should provide more ideas on how we might study it in, for example, young children who haven't learned to read yet. This is interesting to research at what point this phenomenon begins to show in a person's development. I can think of a few fully grown adults as well who I'd like to have submitted this experiment to see how much they believe in what they say, and regardless of whether or not it may or may not be true, because some big words on a screen told them so. Well, we've heard all about why I'm several primates all at once, but now we're on to the question of Leah. Why are you not a bee? Well, this article, Be Informed, that's B, spelled B-double-E, Public Interest Exceeds Understanding in Bee Conservation, is opened with an image of a variety of insects. Some of which are bees. And some of which are very much not bees, and some of which are like maybe bees, maybe wasps. There's a few things here which are very much not bee-shaped. For example, the fly, the cricket, and the butterfly. But the point of this image is this study by Utah State University ecologist Joseph Wilson, who has investigated how much the public's knowledge about what bees there are and what bees are threatened and what we can actually do to help these threatened species of bees. The amount of interest in people who are like, yeah, save the bees, we should be saving the bees and the actual 
knowledge backing that up about what threats are facing bees, what bees are important to save, is there's a there's a disconnect there. In this paper, it seems to all have been brought on by the US Postal Service, who recently released a Protect Pollinator series of stamps featuring the European honeybee and the monarch butterfly. And Joseph Orson, assistant professor of biology at USU's Thule campus, says a social media commenter observed that using these two species on a campaign to protect pollinators is akin to focusing on chickens to save birds. It's a pretty good comparison, actually. So yeah, there's a gap between save the bees and pollinators and the threats to bees, and like people have this energy to go out and do good, which is great, don't get us wrong. But they don't know what to do with it. Mm. Which is not so good, because it means that's been, you know, wasted or misspent. There was a campaign with a cereal brand, I believe. Um, they were giving out packets of wildflower seeds. Um, but on account of the United States takes up a big chunk of a whole continent, um, they were sending the same packets of seeds out and certain species in those seed packets were invasive in some parts of the US. Yikes. And therefore not actually that good for boosting the native flora. So... Having some sort of continuity between the interest people have in getting this done and the information that's actually available to them is important. I would say, actually, that, you know, for example, being aware that there are about 4,000 known species of bees in the continental US, I don't feel is the most important. Well, it's a good way of identifying a gap and then seeking to fill it is an interesting fact. And they do say that in this recent survey, 99% of responders said bees are critical or important, but only 14% were able to guess within 1,000 the actual number of bee species in the United States. And the fact that it's within 1,000 should give responders a fairly decent clue of how many species there are. It should certainly give you a clue that 50 is going to not cut it. That's hardly even a making a dent in like your error bars here. So, yeah, being able to say, oh, you want to do something to help the bees? Great. Say, did you know there are 4,000 species of bees within the continental US? Or get them started with a handy fact of, oh, wow, there's a whole lot here, which we didn't know as lay public. Now, the thing that does concern me is that when shown an image like the one at the top of this press release of a variety of insects, many respondents weren't able to discern bees from non-bees. Now, I would expect I would hope that most people would be able to go, that's definitely a honeybee, that's a fly, that's a cricket, that's a butterfly. But it's it's very clear to me, just from conversations I've had with, for example, my colleagues at my day job this year, that a lot of people don't know the difference between a European honeybee and the common wasps we have about. When they are black and yellow and stripy, but beyond that, they're pretty distinct. By the time you hear a buzzing sound, you might think, is that a bee? Is that a wasp? But as soon as you've got the visual confirmation, it should be pretty evident. As they're thinking, my, that's a very fat, hairy, non-aggressive wasp. Yes, and the big fat bees you see around are bumblebees. They tend to be solitary. They don't make honey. But a lot of them are quite threatened in this country, for sure. Effective pollinators. And also, they're just cute and friendly. Good pals to have around. Good for the garden, good for the soul. It's always nice. You know, sitting out in the summer and watching their fuzzy bottoms disappearing into foxglove flowers. But that is all from us. You can send us any thoughts at Eureka Nerdcast on Twitter or to EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com.
leave us a review on iTunes, and we'll see you again next time. But until then, that's all from me. And all from me. Bye-bye. Senior Conservation Ecologist at the Field Museum in Chicago. Shikirgu. From Newfoundland. I would like to extend a formal apology to any Canadians listening for whatever the f that was.